any of you have any thoughts on the urban chicken movement? I kind of thought it was dying down as a thing. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, there were chickens running all over town. It was illegal then, or at least it was where I live and in a lot of uh, cities and municipalities around the country. And it maybe had a certain appeal that it doesn't now that I think they've made, you know, made some sort of rules for it. People would get roosters, God knows why. And they'd crow when the street lights came on or when somebody's front porch light came on or when somebody drove down the street. I don't know. I don't want a rooster crowing in the middle of the night all the time. The little chickens be running around all over the place. And, you know, I know how to turn a live bird into food, so... It was a good food source for me for a while there when I was a little bit low on cash. I'm just kidding. I generally don't steal live chickens. There's a, not too far from here, in a town near here, there's a Indian pizza restaurant and they've got a, a not from the parking lot chicken, chicken pizza. Because, you know, this area is famous for having... Uh, this started, I think, before the urban chicken movement, honestly. I think somebody probably just let go some chickens in these bushes along this strip on the, f on the freeway or on the highway by a lot of the strip malls and fast food restaurants and stuff. <laughs> you, just, you drive through there, and there's just chickens all over the place. You go into the parking lot there. Sometimes we stop at the grocery store. They're going to and from the boat and park and you walk by some bushes and it's full of chickens. Chickens sitting on eggs, chickens running all over the place. And we're like, you know, we're here for chickens and eggs anyway. Let's just pick them up. I guess people maybe don't. Maybe they're, you know don't know how to clean a chicken or maybe it's just uh, chickens are so cheap that it's not worth it or maybe they think the chickens aren't healthy because they're not shot full of antibiotics I don't know but I do think about grabbing maybe I'm just thinking that Taj Mahal song you know that's that Taj Mahal song from the 70s it's off of recycling the blues and other stuff it's a great tune it's called cakewalk into town it's one of my all-time favorite records with howard johnson a great jazz tuba player um taking up the bass parts anyway taj sings my work done got scarce honey my work you done got hard i spend the whole day stealing chickens mama from the rich folks yard Anyway, that album that I listened to so many times, I memorized every scratch on it, uh, really forms my intellectual framework for understanding uh, the urban chicken movement because it's mostly, you know, in my experience, rich folks who are uh, raising these chickens in their backyard and sometimes in the street. You know, it's not primarily people who need the food, I don't think. My neighborhood's full of chickens. It's fuller of chickens 
in the last few weeks is why I'm thinking about it because my neighbors on one side of me now got a bunch of chickens I don't know they're using chickens to chicken manure to fertilize their little middle-class hippie garden so we got all kinds of crazy smells coming over our direction when you get a little breeze sounds like a foghorn leghorn cartoon over there and smells like a combination fertilizer plant grateful dead concert you know that William Carlos Williams poem, The Red Wheelbarrow? It actually was just called number 22 in his collection. Spring and all. But now it's usually called The Red Wheelbarrow. But I don't really like that because it just said, you know, XXII in the original collection. And beneath that it said, So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. It's a really well-known poem, and people go to great lengths to explain it in terms of the urban chicken movement. Like, well, if you're going to have chickens, you're going to have to have a wheelbarrow, you know. And I don't know. As a teacher and critic, I'm of the disposition that it's okay to overread the text, but I don't see that. All I see really is that this thing evokes a very, very strong mental image, and I can see this as a picture or a painting more than I can as a poem. You know, Williams was friends with and engaged in his art. Uh, you know, Charles DeMuth and other famous painters of his time, he had a very painterly sensibility. What I think is interesting about that though is when, when people read this and they want to project into it all this sort of meaning that, that really, again, I don't feel like the text sustains it's a kind of a Warshak test you know uh, that that says something about their personality and I think in a way like the urban chicken movement is is a similar thing you know it's like it clearly can't just be you know about economics it can't be economically viable to get yourself set up to raise a few chickens at home, when chickens are so cheap, people won't even steal them, and eggs are almost free because of subsidies. Clearly, what's going on here is that people are involved in painting a picture of a life that they, uh, you know, want to create or have in their mind. And I'm not being at all dismissive about that. That's what we call art. You know, visualizing something and then and then realizing that in the world is, is art. They're beautifying their life, their world, and their experience through that. And I think that's what's at the heart of this. It's a, it's a creation of a, uh, well, it's the realization of a fantasy that they're having. Um, and again, I think that that's good even if they're usually probably an ordinary conversation compelled to explain that in some much more, you know, radically practical way than the way that I'm characterizing it right here. The first friends I, I knew about to keep some chickens, this was 25 years ago or something. I mean, I guess, you know, I had friends growing up who had chickens running around their farms or whatever, which I guess was the same thing at the end of the day. I don't know. But anyway, these friends, you know, they, they kind of lived out in the country-ish they had a little place and some had a garden and 
They had to go home because uh, they had to be there when the mail came because they were getting chicks in the mail. I'm like, what? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Why? You know, we're going to raise chickens. Why? So we can eat the eggs. I'm like, is your grocery store closed? Eggs probably cost about 85 cents a dozen at that point in life. But, you know, I get it. They wanted their little homestead to work on as a way of building a life. And it didn't have anything to do with economics. But also our world sort of pressured them to maybe explain it in those terms because it seemed silly to say, you know, because we want to have some obligations that keep us at home instead of sitting here listening to a lecture and talking to you. You know, Herbert Hoover in the height of the Depression allegedly promised a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage. And, and the, the attribution of this uh, and, and whether he said that or not is a, is a contested and shifting thing, but a chicken in every pot has, has long been you know, thought of as a, as a sign of wealth. Uh, but I think it's more than that. I mean, I think that the idea uh, suggests like you know, comfort, place, uh, you know, uh, it was a symbol of home, I guess. And I think for a lot of people, it feels more like a home to have a certain kind of uh, food security there. I don't know. My grandparents, I think I've probably mentioned before, but canned all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, you go through the garage, like a museum of canned things that they'd grown. They'd known food insecurity, as we call it now. They'd known what it was to be poor. They knew how to stretch things out over the winter when my granddad was laid off. Um, and having a bunch of food around like that was comforting. And, uh, and I think that uh, it might not be so much about food anymore, but having those chickens around, having a garden, having that kind of uh, life is uh, comforting to people. And I don't know, I guess even if they were regarded as a metaphor and not a literal thing, looking out upon the bounty of the backyard and knowing that you're not going to starve because you could eat that chicken or those eggs engenders a strong sense of home. For people, and then I guess also probably knowing that uh, you know you're connected to food in a way that's a lot more personal and a lot more uh, intimate than the blind supply chain that brings us our food is, I think, important too. There's a really interesting line in Allen Ginsberg's poem from the 50s, 1955, I think, supermarket in California. Walt Whitman's walking around in the supermarket and he's asking the grocery boy, who killed the pork chops? It's interesting because, you know, pork chops are not a living thing. A pig or a hog is. And you take the pork chops out of them. And it's asking a question about how do we get from the living thing to the product, to the food. Um, and I think if you have a garden... And if you have animals around, then you know the answer to that question in a way that I think is probably satisfying and maybe important to remember and probably a great thing to teach kids 
and everything else. And, and, you know, to look at that chicken and know that that's what food looks like, I don't know. That's probably a really good thing. You know, I guess that's why the joke about the not from the parking lot chicken chicken pizza is is good or it works. The people, uh, you know, the people making the pizza recognize that the chicken could have come from the parking lot, that it's, you know, <laughs> at some level the same thing. I don't know. I might actually prefer the parking lot chicken, though it's probably not all pumped full of water and shot full of steroids. You know, one of my favorite beers is Guinness Extra Stout. It's beautiful. I'll go to a place and I'll say, do you have Guinness? And, you know, sometimes I'll say, yes. I mean, you know, when I lived in Boston, obviously I'd get it. But you go there now, places now, and, you know, ask for it. And they'll say, no, we have something else. And you're like, oh, okay, what, what, what's that like? And they're like, it's like Guinness on steroids. Like, that's a way to describe things, like on steroids. It's like, what, what is that? That's supposed to be good? Sounds bad to me. I don't want anything extreme. I want the old thing. I don't want the old thing reinvented. You know, chickens, this is, this is demonstrably, measurably true, are twice as big now as they were 50 years ago. In the, in the 50s, the average market size of a chicken was three pounds, and now it's six pounds. We've been getting these, uh, they call them heirloom chickens. They're, they're small. They're under three pounds. They're not only the perfect size, but they're they're delicious. They're not all mushy and flabby. They've got some texture to the meat, and you can actually get seasoning down into the meat because it's not like cooking a turkey. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Why I'm concerned with it. I just, you know, I think that when we think about things like, you know, what what are we trying to get from? the urban chicken movement? What are we trying to get from trying to go back to doing things the old way? I wonder about that myself because I'm always doing things the old way. I'm making wine at home and I'm making my own guitars and I recognize that I'm a middle class dude with a job doing that. You know, our grandparents did things like that, uh, you know, to stretch their dollars that were few and far between. They raised food at home because they knew how my grandparents did, you know, because they came from farms and and it helped them uh, make ends meet. And when we do that, we're trying to do something else. I hope we're not trying to get twice as much out of it. hope we're not trying to double the size of the chicken. I hope we're doing it in some way that, uh, you know, expects a modest return. You know, I mean, because when it comes down to it, the things they did to save money, we spend money on. My granny would quilt together those little pieces of quilt because it was a way to use up old stuff and get something useful out of it for a little bit of money and try to make a quilt now and you spend a fortune on it. You go get set up to to set up your urban chicken experiment, and you're going to spend a lot of money on that. You can buy a lot of chickens for what it costs to get them set up. 
So I, I guess what I hope for is that we're not thinking about that in economic terms and we're not thinking about it in terms of capitalism anymore. We're not thinking about it in terms of like, we're going to put this much in and get twice as much out of it because I don't think that we are. But I think that if we think about doing these things for different reasons that are outside of economic terms and we're not you know, overly nostalgic about the outcome and we're not overly, uh, you know, capitalist about the outcome. So we don't want it to, you know, give us twice as much or stretch the dollar like, like it did for our grandparents. But rather if we do it for our own, in our own time for our own reasons, then there's still uh, some magic in it. You know, like that William Carlos Williams poem that I that I read just a minute ago, uh, you gotta leave some room for yourself in it. In an earlier poem from 1916, uh, To a Solitary Disciple, William shows that same kind of preoccupation with the structure of things. Uh, you know, he says in it, writes, whatever you prefer, rather notice, mon cher, that the moon is tilted above the steeple than that its color is shell pink. Rather observe it is early morning than that the sky is smooth as turquoise. Rather grasp how the dark converging lines of the steeple meet at the pinnacle. Perceive how its little ornament tries to stop them. See how it fails. See how the converging lines of the hexagonal, hexagonal spire escape upward, receding, dividing. I love that. I love that image. I never look at a church steeple with a little bulb that tries to add some mass to the top of those uh, diminishing lines uh, without uh, thinking about this poem and what it taught me about architecture. I mean, the, the idea here, as I read it, is that the structure of things is important and that the conclusion or uh, to race to an image um, rather than thinking of the structure, is to end the conversation. If you notice, uh, you know, that its color is shell pink, then you're just done. Okay, I, I know what color the moon is. It's shell pink. But if I think about the structure of it, I can, conti I can continue to interpret that in various ways forever. So, you know, don't say that your chickens are there to give you eggs. Don't say that you're doing it because your grandparents did it. You know, just, uh, just do it. <laughs> and it can continue to change and evolve in meaning. And if it continues to change and evolve in, uh, evolve in meaning, we call that a relationship. And relationships are ongoing and they grow. I still look at that church steeple in a different way every time I see it. I haven't reached any conclusions about it, but it still provides me the opportunity to think about what I'm doing. And that's, I guess, what I'm suggesting ultimately uh, people are doing with this urban chicken movement. It gives them the opportunity to think about what they're doing and why and where they live. And I don't know for sure. I haven't done an exhaustive survey, but that's the way I'm looking at it. And that seems hopeful and positive to me. And if that, uh, you know, has maybe during the pandemic got a little uh, resurgence, you know, the, the chicken movement is back on maybe. And I don't know I, if it is or not. It, it seems that it is to me. Now, then I think that's a good thing. And I think that we're learning from this and we'll come out of this uh, a little more grounded, a little more fo focused. I hope that's the truth. Um, anyway, thanks, friends, for listening. 
and continuing to support the podcast. We're coming up on a year, man. This is the last, this is the 52nd episode, I think, or 51st. It's been a long, strange trip. It's been really, uh, uh, you know, it's been really interesting, and I'm really grateful for you, the listener, for keeping it going, because I, you know, I wouldn't do it if no one listened. And, uh, and yeah, we'll see what the future brings. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe, and share with your friends, and keep the thing, uh, thing growing. I appreciate it. See you next week.